Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 28, the long-awaited Greg Oliver interview. Um, of course, as I mentioned before, we we the reason it's long awaited is because I I kind of sat on it for a few weeks there. I originally did this conversation with Greg uh, coincidentally the same week that Greg was a guest on um, the Mothership with Brian Last talking about the whole Rocky Johnson uh, scandal. And you know I didn't want to have Greg be. Uh, featured on two Arcadian Vanguard shows in the same week. So I sat on it for a few weeks and saved it for a later time. And this is that later time, because we're going to be talking to Greg Oliver of Slam Wrestling in just a little bit. Before we get to that, I just want to get to a couple of other things. Um, you know what? I had such a good time getting on my soapbox last week to speak on a, a relevant topic related to old school wrestling that I wanted to brief, briefly do it again this week. Um, because Triple H, who... I have been a recent supporter of and excited to see him uh, creatively in charge of WWE in the wake of Vince McMahon's retirement. Um, he had some um, kind of uh, troubling things to say uh, to for fans of old school wrestling, at least, in a recent appearance on Logan Paul's podcast, where he had an infamous quote that was quoted in a lot of places where he praised Vince McMahon apparently for uh, taking, you know, the old taking the wrestling out of the smoke filled arenas argument, except this time what he said was that, uh, and I think I have this quote, right? He said that before Vince McMahon wrestling was just this little tiny thing that was done in bars. <laughs> now, I don't really know what to say about this, but uh, obviously most of the people, I'm hoping all the people listening to this show, know that that's simply not true. But what frightens me is that you have generations of fans, especially younger fans, who kind of have swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the WWE version of wrestling history. And, you know, this accounts for an overwhelming majority of fans who hear things like that, that pro wrestling was a penny-ante business before Vince McMahon got into it, and they believe it. And they absorb that, and that becomes gospel truth. Uh, whereas most of us here, I think, realize that professional wrestling was doing huge business well before Vince McMahon came into the picture. Um, there were major stadium shows going back at least to the 1911 Frank Gotch-George Hackenschmidt match at Comiskey Park. Um, there were several major stadium shows uh, off the top of my head in the 1930s. You had Man Mountain Dean and Jim Londis. You had um, Dano O'Mahony and Ed Don George in Boston uh, doing an, a, a crowd number that was the legitimate American attendance record for pro wrestling 
all the way up until the Ric Flair, Kerry Von Erich, uh, Texas Stadium show in the 80s. Um, you had, God, Dusty Rhodes and Harley Race in Tampa. Uh, Dusty Rhodes and um, superstar Billy Graham, the Super Bowl of Wrestling. You had John Tolis and Freddie Blassie at the L.A. Coliseum doing an attendance figure that was still the all-time wrestling record for the state of California until WrestleMania a few years ago, you know. And aside from the stadiums, you had wrestling companies and territories that were regularly selling out or doing really good business in arenas all over the country on a monthly, sometimes bi-weekly, sometimes even weekly basis. Wrestling was a thriving business and was not some backroom operation before Vince McMahon. Now, if... If Triple H had wanted to couch it differently, what he might have said is that um, it was a regional enterprise until Vince McMahon. That would have been true. Uh, Vince McMahon created the first truly, truly national uh, wrestling promotion in the modern sense, uh, taking it away from the days of wrestling being territorial and regional. That's something to brag about. Also, the fact that the numbers they do in some of these stadiums, they really are some of the, the biggest wrestling crowds that have ever been assembled. And they're, they're, they blow away a lot of records and set new records all the time. They could have said that. He could have said that. And it would have been factually factually accurate. But to say that before Vince McMahon, wrestling was this little thing that took place in bars is wildly inaccurate. And I hope that a lot of fans realize that. I mean, you would have to go back to maybe the 1870s to find the era when wrestling was pretty much taking place in the back rooms of bars. Because even by the 1880s, it was already big business and it was already um, selling out arenas in various parts of the country. So, um, again, just me stepping into the breach to correct a lot of the erroneous beliefs about wrestling history that are swirling around out there. So enough of that. Um, but speaking of Vince McMahon on that front, um, if you pick up the new issue of Inside the Ropes that just came out, the August issue, issue number 23, it has John Moxley on the cover, you will find my brand new article on Vince McMahon that was written in the wake of all the recent Vince McMahon scandals. And it takes a look at what that kind of, might mean for him and we sort of um, delve into the psyche of Vince McMahon explore his history and his background and take a closer look at these scandals that have dogged him for so many years if you'd like to read about that then I encourage you to pick up issue number 23 of Inside the Ropes on sale now at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com and I want to quickly mention my two book signings that are coming up later in the month of August if you can get yourself to Parsippany, New Jersey on Saturday, August 20th for WrestleBash 22, I will be there signing copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And the following weekend, the weekend of August 26th, I will be in Albany, New York at the second annual International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame weekend. I will have a table signing copies of Blood and Fire. If you would like to come out to either of those weekends, I encourage you to go online if you want to find out more information about either of those things, WrestleBash 22 and the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame weekend in Albany. But enough about that, enough about me. 
let us get to this conversation that I've been waiting to put out there now for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it is finally time. I had a chance to sit down and talk to the prolific author and editor, Greg Oliver. And of course, you know, we talk about a lot of the books he's been working on here, including the one that he's wrapping up with Medusa. We talk a little bit about Cauliflower Alley Club, wrestling in Canada, uh, really wrestling all over. And the many things that Greg has covered in the many books that he has written and contributed to over the years. So if that sounds good to you, then keep on listening, because I am going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody who, if you've spent any time on the internet reading about wrestling in the last uh, 20 to 30 years, you definitely know who this is. Um, he's probably best known to wrestling fans as the man behind Slam Wrestling, but also in addition to that, he's written a slew of books on professional wrestling, also on hockey as well. Some of the wrestling books that you may know are the uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the tag teams, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the heels, many others. He actually has another book coming out in the spring, which we're going to talk about, uh, which is a book that he is doing with Medusa. Um, let's see, what else can I say about this guy? He's He is a recipient of the James Melby Award from both the George Tragos Luthez Hall of Fame, and the Cauliflower Alley Club. And he also happens to be the favorite writer of Bret the Hitman Hart. I'm talking about Mr. Greg Oliver. That's me. I'm definitely a favorite of a few people. Thanks for the, the introduction there, Brian. Yeah, it's, uh, I am one of the few that have gotten the award in both places. And uh, I'm excited that Steve Johnson is going to join me. Um, at the Cauliflower Club, and he'll get the Melby Award there too. He told me in, in 2008 when we got the Melby in um, Iowa, he said, Greg, anytime you're over 50, someone wants to give you an award, you take it. Because I, I didn't feel I'd earned it at that point. So I, I went with him at that point and, and, and accepted it. Uh, whereas the, when I got the Melby last year for the CAC for contributions to pro wrestling history, uh, I knew I'd earned it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That was another 11 years. <laughs> Well, I have to say, even, I mean, I was there when we're talking about the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion from last year, last September. I was there when you got the award. And I, and I know you're saying that you felt that you deserved it at that point. But I have to say, even then, I was struck by your humility and just your kind of self-effacing nature. And, you know, I, I, I personally think, I know many people think that it's well-deserved. And I'm glad that you, that you feel that way, because it is, in my opinion. It is, but I'm also Canadian, so you don't go around bragging. <laughs> right. Well, yes, I guess that's true. You guys are much more kind of low-key, down-to-earth, very, you know, kind of uh, self-deprecating. We're not going to get into politics too much, right? So, okay. <laughs> no, please no. God, I learned long ago if I, if I made politics an issue with this show, I would run out of guests very quickly. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like I left out so many things from you it's just amazing to me how i think what is it um seven wrestling books or eight by now is it uh yeah there's a lot it, it's it's hard <laughs> to keep track sometimes i did there's the five in the pro wrestling hall of fame series four yes. of which i did with steve johnson uh you left out the uh storytellers and uh heroes and icons uh, both are really big thick amazing books 
Uh, we did a book on Benoit. It was the quickie book that came out right at the beginning right. with Irv Muchnick and um, Keith McCoy. And that was the bestseller out of the whole bunch, but it was also true crime. So it sold a lot at the beginning and not as much later. Uh, but I'm finding now if I'm at a table selling books, people are curious and they're, they're people who weren't alive back then or really weren't old enough to understand the Benoit stuff. I did the John Arezzi book, which is baseball, uh, country music and wrestling. So did I leave an A? Oh, we did a slam wrestling book too. Right. That's right. I just, I just saw that here on the list. And I want to say too, that um, the reason I mentioned, you know, the, those early editions in the pro wrestling hall of fame series, the Canadians, the tag teams, the heels, um, those three books came out during the time that I was working for WWE and we were, or when I say we, I should, I really mean I, I, I was kind of curating, curating, um, you know, kind of a wrestling reference library to have in the publications department there. I just thought it might be helpful. And so we had those books there and those books were, were heavily, uh, dog-eared. We used them a lot. In fact, I think I used, um, I also used those a lot when I was doing um, my own books, WWE Legends and Pro Wrestling FAQ. So, I mean, they're, they're pretty, I know for a lot of us, they're kind of, they're among our favorite wrestling reference books. So thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, no, I remember one of the best honors was Dusty Rhodes saying that, uh, you know, he had, he, he made sure the books were in the library at NXT. And okay when Bobby the Brain Heenan told Steve and I that he kept the tag teams book in his bathroom. So it's like, you know, <laughs> that's the ultimate right there. That is great. And know, knowing Bobby, you know, that kind of has a double meaning, of course. Yep. yep. But, no, oh, I'll take it. <laughs> oh, you know what, too? You know what I want to also say? And I, I forgot to include it when I introduced you, but you also wrote the Sweet Daddy Seeky documentary from 2017. Yeah, well... Film is a funny thing. Yes, you have to write it to get the funding. Um, but then at that point, it wasn't really my script that they ended up using. However, I was there intimately with the project. I was there mm. often sitting there with Seeky trying to get him to answer the questions, came up with all kinds of questions for the guests, whether it was uh, Darlene Love, whether it was Red Hart, whether it was you know boxer George Chivalo, or uh, it was my idea to put him together with Charlie Pride which was one of the best moments absolutely in the entire documentary when he and Charlie start singing together. I agree. And I like it because it's one of those, you know, outside the box kind of moments, you know what I mean? It's like, it's something where you brought something to the project that other people wouldn't necessarily have done. And it kind of expanded the scope of it a little bit. I, I didn't expect it when I watched it, but, um, it's a very good documentary, and I think is it still available on Amazon Prime? Is that the best way for people? I, to I see? hope so. I, I'm not hundred percent sure. Saw. It's definitely available in Canada through the CBC uh, documentary, CBC Gem. Uh, it it was partly funded by the CBC, so they controlled it for a number of years. That's why it took so long to get out uh, to the bigger audience. And um, he's an interesting guy to me because, um, you know, he goes way back in the business talking about Seeky. I mean, he's got to be one of the earliest kind of career-wise um, living wrestlers and yet very, very low profile. You never really hear or see a lot of him. I know when I wrote the Sheik book, I tried to get a hold of him and I failed because I know that he also worked for the Sheik. So, I mean, kudos to you guys for getting him out of his shell or wherever he's been it, it took some convincing for sure and I, it was partly because he he'd learned to trust me through the years he'd often call me 
about old wrestlers, uh, ask me whatever happened to them, or I'd call them when somebody that he knew had passed. Um, so I was keeping him in the loop a little bit. So there was a trust factor. And that was a, a big part of it because he still, to a degree, lived that kayfabe life, right? Where he didn't want to reveal everything about pro wrestling. And, and even in the documentary, he doesn't reveal everything. He's still a little bit secretive about a lot of his life. Right. And I guess that's part of it, too, is some of the I mean, God, it definitely was part of it with the Sheik and even the Sheik's family. Part of it is that, you know, I guess you get out of the business. And if, if you're that old or you go back to that area, you're hesitant to give up any of the you know, so-called secrets that you have because it's just been burned into you to do that. I know even for years, uh, Bruno San Martino was like that. I mean, he eventually softened up in the in the later years but he was also like that where he didn't want to give things away and his biography was extremely kayfabe he gave really nothing away in that but um, I guess that still is what holds a lot of these old-time guys back and it's been an interesting comparison because I moved on to do some hockey writing and I've got a, a baseball book coming out and what I found is those guys you know because their lives were lived in public and everything's documented, right? Like all the stats, like they can't go making up stories. Whereas the wrestlers, nothing's documented. They can make up whatever they want. And it's sometimes really hard to go fact check it because, you know, the, there's no record keeping of, of pro wrestling. And, and kudos to guys like Don Luce and J. Michael Kenyon and, and Steve Yowie and all the guys that have really tried to collect the results. So we have some sort of framework for what happened in pro wrestling because it ate out there, but like in baseball, I can find out, you know, exactly what pitches were thrown in a game from 1980. It's crazy. Right. And that's also why, I mean, you know, let's face it. Like there's always these debates with wrestling halls of fame, let's say, and who's in, who's not in, who should be in. And, you know, when you're dealing with sports, like you said, baseball or hockey or anything, I mean, you have numbers. <laughs> you can look at numbers and go, well, look, let's, you know, even if you never heard of this guy and didn't never saw him play or anything, look at the numbers, look at what he did. And in, in wrestling, I feel like wrestling, it's more like when you're dealing with something like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or if there was, a, I don't know if there is, but like a movie Hall of Fame or something where it's more, I don't know, like subjective, you know, you can't really say for sure it's just one of those things like you know it when you see it like anybody with a with a brain in their head is going to say okay you know luthez should be in there bruno san martino should be in there you know rick flair should be in there but once you get past the that kind of like rarefied air then it starts becoming how do you really judge you know well not that was part of the fun part of doing the heroes and icons book especially is you had these figures like a whitey caldwell down in like the gulf coast region that was just iconic right that everybody knew and was a massive massive star and yet you know you go to you know somewhere else georgia and they don't know anything about them so it's it's just a really weird business that way uh, even here in toronto like carlos rocha had this massive main event appeal at maple leaf gardens that lasted for a couple months and that was it that was his biggest run ever but you know he's not a hall of famer but my neighbor who's portuguese that was the first thing he asked me when he learned that I wrote about wrestling. He's like, Oh, Carlos Rocha. Like that's, you know, everybody gets a different impression from wrestling and their favorite wrestlers. And you're right. It is subjective. It is very much territorial locational. Uh, even today with the national 
broadcast we get, right? And the streaming, this and that, there's no way you could possibly watch them all. So if you're not watching AEW, you're not going to have an appreciation for, you know, whether it's the Young Bucks or Orange Cassidy. And if you only watch WWE, you'll, you'll know nothing about those guys. Right. And, and from back in the day, the regional aspect is also, like you said, it's another big, um, I don't know, obstacle or just, it, it just kind of makes things more complicated because, but well, you mentioned Carlos Rocha, I came across him again when I was writing the Sheik book that he had had some main events at the Maple Leaf Gardens against the Sheik. Of course he lost. And I was, you know, my initial reaction was, who is this guy? You know, and I, I had to try to find out. And, but I've also, I, I was approached by somebody of all things not long ago, a, a guy who was looking to write a biography of him and was looking for, you know, kind of contacts or information or whatever. So obviously there are people out there who remember him. I remember, you know, I grew up in WWF territory in the Northeast United States. And when I first started to get a look at WCW, what was interesting to me was they would call back their own history. Like sometimes they would play historical clips and the clips they would play would be mid-Atlantic stuff, Georgia stuff from 70s and 80s. And they would be talking about people that were huge down there. You know, they'd show Mr. Wrestling 2 or Thunderbolt Patterson and people like that, or, you know, the, the Anderson brothers and Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. And where I lived, you know, we had a whole different pantheon. You know, we had Chief J. Strongbow and, and, and Bruno Sammartino and Gorilla Monsoon and the Valiant brothers and Bob Backlund and, you know, think Ivan Putsky. So it was like, you, you know, you're only getting one version of history in some cases, depending on where you grew up. And, you know, especially now with WWE owning so much of the history and kind of monopolizing the business. Um, if you're not a figure that's important in their story, you know, you don't really get put in that category, which is, you know, it makes it harder to find out um, who the legends are from different eras. Well, and, and they're definitely a bit lazy in the sense that they go back to the same legends again and again. Right. You know, even the upcoming A&E biographies they're doing, they're the same old guys, right? That you know, again and again, like, do we really need another Roddy Piper one? Do we really need another Ric Flair thing? That, that's separate from the A&E thing. But I mean, it's like, you know, these are all the guys we know. We like that the Sweet Daddy Seek a good example or the the one that Chris Bornia did on the, the, the black ladies in wrestling, the early ones. Like those are the fascinating ones because you learn stuff. You know, how much are you going to learn about yet another Hulk Hogan A&E biography? Right. That's true. It's true. And it's, you know, they're, they're doing, I guess, what every wrestling company has ever done, which is they're educating their fans the way they want them to be educated. But unfortunately, you know, it's a, it's a very skewed uh, version of history. Like, like I said, when I started seeing a lot of that, that more, more kind of those, I guess, Southeastern legends, whatever you want to call it, when I was fairly young, it gave me this notion that like, oh my God, there's, there's a whole different, you know, depending on where you'd lived, there's all different people that you would consider, you know, the legends like in Toronto, you'd have Tiger Jeet Singh, you'd have, you'd have the Sheik. And of course, Whipper Billy Watson was kind of like the Bruno of Toronto. And it's, it's interesting to me to learn about who the legends are in different parts of the country, you know? Amen. And that's why you go to the College Rally Club or some of these places. I, the first time we went in 2001, my wife and I were sitting at a table with all these guys from like the Gulf Coast region, like Bill Bowman 
and Jim White, who was, you know, Jerry Lawler's first big uh, tag team partner. Like all these guys I'd never heard of and they'd never been north of the border. Uh, and so it was fascinating. And, and I ended up, you know, writing or talking about those guys over the years many times. Yeah. And, you know, and I wanted to ask you about that too, because I know, you know, um, from your perspective, I, I, I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but even just as a fan, as somebody who was interested in wrestling, I'm assuming it would have been Maple Leaf Wrestling in Toronto, right? That you, or, or am, I, am I aging you too far? No, it was all Hulkamania. It was WWF. Wow. Okay. When, when you know, 84, 85, Hulkamania right. ran wild on me. Um, then I realized there was more out there, but it took a while. And I, you know, you get, you get the magazines and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It's just, you know, it, I did miss out on a lot of great stuff. Uh, but then I, you know, I got out there to document it, right? Like who else had dinner with George Scott and talked about, you know, his time as co-owner in Toronto, right? The Crockett's had a third, he had a third and, and Tunney's had a third. So I guess I'm out there educating myself constantly and trying to share that knowledge with other people. That's so interesting because I think if I understand it right, that I think Toronto was kind of one of the first places where they really kind of successfully, meaning the WWF successfully moved in and took over. And I guess part of that was because they had Jack Tunney on board and they had sort of like made a deal. Do I understand that right? It, it wasn't like a situation where, they had to have this long prolonged war over the territory. Correct. Yeah. Tunney just basically upped and, and moved on and, and said, let's work with you. But what makes Canada fascinating at the time though, was there were different rules, especially when it came to television. So they had to do a separate show, right? They had to do the Maple Leaf wrestling show and they had to sell different advertising. You couldn't do the U S ads because you had less ad time to set to, to sell in Canada. Um, so the Toronto office became really important because it was a, a an example of running a, a country. And so they, they really used it for many years and, and up until Carl DeMarco in the late 90s, it wasn't until the early 2000s when it got phased out and, and some of the rules changed and the internet evened everything out, right? right? So, you know, you really couldn't get away. The television didn't matter as much. The internet started coming along and uh, yeah. It's, uh, Toronto was an interesting example uh, of, uh, yeah, basically just here's the keys. You can have it. Right. You know, and I, I wondered about that Maple Leaf show that they did, that the WWF did, you know, because as a kid, I didn't understand why there was a separate show just for there. And, and of course, you could always tell because it had that trademark ramp that would lead to the ring, just like the Maple Leaf Gardens always had. I guess from the camera angle, it would be the ramp you know, right below the camera leading directly into the ring. So you didn't have any ring steps. And anytime I saw that as a kid, I always knew, okay, that's the Maple Leaf Gardens. But I, I didn't know that it was kind of like this, that they were kind of bound by these international rules and they had to have a show. That's interesting. Yeah, no, and it, it, it gave, a, you know, jobs to some people to sell the advertising here, uh, as well as obviously the uh, – people running the office, your, your Billy Red Lions and your Norm Kimber doing the announcement, like all the people that became sort of iconic Toronto figures. Right. So I know that, um, you know, obviously this predates you, but I know you've done your homework and you've written a lot about the history of wrestling in Toronto. But, you know, we were talking about the whole Jack Tunney thing. So Jack Tunney is there and Frank Tunney's passed away and 
Frank Tiny was a really close friend of Vince McMahon Sr. And they always had this kind of, or they seem to have this friendly relationship um, as promoters. Do you think that if Frank Tiny was still around, that it would have gone down the same way as it did? That's a good question. Because he's like one of Vince's dad's friends. You know, would he have been just like, would he have worked differently or allowed him to operate longer or, or, you know what I mean? I, I wonder about that. No, I, I think they probably saw the writing on the wall regardless. So if Frank Tunney had been around, he would have seen that, you know, this Vince Jr. kid's got a good idea. Let's expand it. Um, because they really, while they, they had a lot of power in Canada, they did respect all the other sort of little fiefdoms that existed out there. And it, and Canada has been really odd too, because there's so many hockey arenas that you couldn't run wrestling in, in the winter. And so there's summer territories, which you don't hear about much in the U S right. Like, so the Atlantic Canada was a summer territory, Northern Ontario uh, and a lot of the Bearman stuff were summer right. territories and, and even stampede. Like they would take a little bit of a break. Um, just, it was harder to get arenas in the winter. And the AWA did that too here in America, in the Midwest, they would, they would kind of take the winters off cause it got so brutally cold. And I think from what I can understand, that was one of the reasons that Nick Bockwinkle always turned down the NWA title because he would say, well, why would I want this belt where I have to travel all over the country and the world and do all this when I could just be here in the Midwest, I'm, I'm the world champion, I'm paid well, I, I, you know, I don't have to travel everywhere and I get the winners off. So, I mean, how could you argue with that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's again, it's just a fascinating business that way because there's every place ran a little bit different. They had different payoffs. They had different people running the business. They had different TV deals, different responses in the community. You know, it, yeah, that's what makes wrestling continually fascinating to look at the old stuff. Yeah, and I think that um, um, with the stuff that they were doing up there, like you were talking about summer promotions and things, uh, the bear man was somebody that, again, I didn't know a ton about him until I was researching the Sheik book. And I started seeing the the ongoing kind of promotional relationship that they had. And Jim Friedman's incredible book, Drawing Heat, where he talks about the weird, like, love-hate relationship that the Tunnies and the bear man had, where they went from, like, competing with him to cooperating with him to tolerating him and just it's an interesting thing to me that they would even just allow this guy to operate although I guess they didn't consider him a threat or or anything like that well he was running a lot more small towns right he wasn't really coming into Toronto much though he did run you know smaller arenas on the outskirts of Toronto he wasn't getting Maple Leaf Gardens uh, he did try to do varsity arena once which is right downtown but, you know, those didn't go very well because they, they fought back against them. And you're right. But there's those guys all around, right? The little, uh, I don't know what you call them, outlaw guys, right? right. Whether it was the Poffos fighting the, in Tennessee or, you know, whatever it may be, those ones are, are even less documented than some of the mainstream promotions. And again, there's a lot to delve into. It's true. It's true. There, there are a lot of, I guess, what they used to call outlaws. It's such a funny thing because... None of that stuff is enforceable in a court of law, like all of this, you know, I have this territory, you have that territory. So it's all kind of made up. And to be honest, I mean, you know, 
everyone has a right to try to run a wrestling promotion wherever they want to, but that's not the way they thought about it back then. But there, there, yeah, there were a lot of those kind of so-called outlaws running all over the country back then. I, and sort of today what they'd call independent wrestling, I guess back then they called it outlaws, but I don't even think the bear man didn't even have TV. Right. Although I think there was some he, brief, he had briefly had TV here and there, but it was never any consistent. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you look at the Johnny powers, you know, IWA, that kind of idea, right. With Eddie Einhorn and all that stuff. And he actually took it to court. Steve Johnson's done all kinds of research on that. And, you know, took the, the crocus to court to say, I should be able to run here. And, and he was, but again, it's the way business was conducted back then, right? You had the local mayor, you had the politicians in your pocket. Yeah. You sent them their bottle of liquor every year at Christmas and you, you know, you did whatever you could to scratch their back. So they would look out for you. And, and uh, it's true because the, the other thing they would do is I guess in some States here in the U S they sort of had that loophole where, only one person at a time was allowed to have a state wrestling promoter's license. So they would use that sometimes as a way to enforce, I guess, a local monopoly. Like I know that, or I believe that Bill Watts had a deal like that. I think Eddie Graham in Florida may have had a deal like that. And I'm pretty positive Don Owen had a deal like that in the Northwest, which is why especially he was able to continue on for so long because that made it even harder. You had to get around all this, all this red tape. And I think yeah. too, yeah, the, the other thing too politics. about, yeah, it is, it's politics. And, but like you mentioned the Eddie Einhorn thing with the, with the IWA and it's hilarious to me because I'm familiar with that whole situation. And, you know, Eddie Einhorn is this guy coming from the quote unquote legitimate world, the above boards world of professional sports He's not a carny. He's not some shady wrestling promoter. You know, he comes from, I guess, the real world, if you want to call it that. And he's trying to do business in the wrestling world. And he's looking around and going like, I can't believe that this is how these guys are running this whole deal. Like, like this isn't even legal. You know, we'd never be able to get away with this in any other, you know, uh, a part of the sports industry, whatever you want to call it. And he was smart enough to do what a lot of them would never think to do, which is take it to court and say, this isn't legal. You can't tell me I can't run here. I'm not going to respect these make-believe boundaries and things, which honestly, you know, devil's advocate is also the way that Vince McMahon thought about it too. Yeah. No, Eddie Einhorn doesn't get enough credit for what he did, not just in wrestling. I mean, he was the idea, like how revolutionary it is in the seventies to think, let's do a college basketball station. There's a, there's a market out there for people to watch college basketball. Now we take it for granted. You can watch whatever game you want, wherever. But he's one of the guys that pioneered that with the early cable TV. Uh, so he had the idea with wrestling. Uh, I met him once at the College Rally Club, but I never got to sit down and talk to him. I tried a couple of times and just never got him. It's uh, really too bad because we lost a lot of history there that I would have loved to capture. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, um... I, I uh, for people that don't know a lot about his life and career, because I know he passed away a few years ago, like you said, I mean, he's probably the, 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 at least from the TV end of things, the TV executive, the network executive mind that's most responsible for popularizing college basketball on television, which is now, I mean, March madness. I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest things that there is. Uh, 
and and he was the guy behind that and even just with the wrestling stuff he did some of the innovations like even something like doing in slow motion instant replay i mean and multiple split screen angles and things like that that came from other sports he brought it to wrestling and then everybody copied it we we really explored some of that in the pro wrestling hall of fame the storytellers just how wrestling really grows through television and when we sat down with bill mercer like bill mercer called wrestling on radio and then he moved into you know calling wrestling on tv the early days of tv and then he's there in world class as they developed the ideas that you had moving camera right and, and the world class promotion was one of the first to really do that so all of a sudden the guys were getting close-ups and they didn't want close-ups they thought it would expose business but soon enough, they realized they became even bigger, larger than life figures uh, with the close-ups. So, you know, so much of television is directly related to growth in, in wrestling. You know, there's no question about it. You know, Vince McMahon doesn't take off if cable TV is not taking off at the same time. The second big run with the 1990s, early 2000s has to do with the second real boom in, call, in cable TV, right? TNT is a new station. You need programming. You go to wrestling. It, it's just crazy the way that's happened over the years. I, they, they talk about how many TVs Gorgeous George sold, and it's true. Right. I mean, that is so true. I, I, you know, that's one of those things, like, because wrestling doesn't – it's always held in low regard, and it doesn't – it's not championed as much as other forms of entertainment and sports in terms of preserving the history. Um, it's easy to forget if you don't – I mean, because – you know, we're losing people that were even alive back then. Gorgeous George was one of the first national television stars. I mean, like household name with with, with Milton Berle, Lucille Ball, all the the early figures of television. It, you know, when you when you said TV in 1950, it was almost like you were saying wrestling at the same time. The understanding was, well, that's kind of one of the things that TV is for to watch wrestling. Like, like it, it, it was that popular. Um, of a thing back then. And that's something that is not really well remembered these days because again, it's just wrestling, you know? Well, and, and boxing too. Like that was the thing. They were both one yeah. camera shoots, they right? Easy. They could put up a camera and shoot them both. It was cheap programming. And sometimes you had the second camera to cut the promos. And that's like, everybody knew their boxers back in the fifties too. And now, right. you know, most people couldn't name more than, one or two boxers on the main stage right i mean yeah that's a whole i mean other thing boxing is in my family because my, my grandfather was a boxer and a coach of boxing and his cousins were world champions and all this kind of stuff and he would talk about it all the time about how you know in those days boxing was constantly on tv with wrestling as well it was just very easy to shoot and you could you know it, it, it all you had to do was wire the you know the building for you know some lights and a camera and you were good to go. It was just happening. It was happening whether or not you filmed it. It was going to happen. So, so it was it was easily digestible early entertainment. And then I think I think pay per view hurt boxing a lot. Where all the bigger biggest fights were, you had to pay a lot of money just to see them. You couldn't see stuff on free TV anymore. In the eighties, the the you know kind of like what we're seeing happening with with football, which is where a lot of the health concerns started to become an issue. And you had sponsors heading for the hills you know people didn't want to sponsor boxing on tv anymore because of the concussion issues and people dying in the ring um like the the like the ray mancini fight in 82 um 
And so then they had to go to pay-per-view in order to make money. But, but that, that hurt boxing very, very much. Um, but anyway, this isn't a boxing podcast, but I can go on and on about, no, because boxing is a big thing for me too. But yes, wrestling was uh, tailor-made for, for TV. I mean, God, you could even go back uh, in, in this country, if you go back to the 20s and you have your sports icons, you know, you have your Babe Ruths and your Jack Dempsey's and people like Red Grange and all that. And Strangler Lewis was on that list, you know, Ed Strangler And Jim Londis would be the other one. Yeah, Jim Londis. But again, if you talk to people today who are sports aficionados, those other names that I mentioned, they're going to know everything about those guys and know who they are. But if you say Strangler Lewis or Jim Londis, they're probably going to go, who? Again, because it's wrestling and, and, and it's not, it's just not preserved as much as the other, as the other things are, sadly. Well, we're trying to make a difference. I know that's right. That's the perfect segue because <laughs> we do a lot of work to try to uh, to try to preserve that stuff. And I'm, you know, I mean, you've been doing it a lot longer than I have. And like I said, I was I was privileged to be there when they gave you the award at CAC, and when you put the microphone in front of my face when when you were when you were doing the roving mic. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, I see, do enjoy that, but see, I'm one of the rare guys at a cauliflower alley club that knows the old guys, right, and knows the current guys. So I'm a good choice to do that roving mic because sometimes the old timers get up there and they disparage and, and mm. just knock all the current guys. And how's this CAC going to grow if you do that? So you need that balance. And, and I like to think I can help a little bit with that. And, yeah. and I know who the uh, MCs are going to be next year or in September. Um, and they're both going to be a good fit for that too. Oh, good. Can you, are you at liberty to say? I don't know. Well, Arezzi did it last year. So Arezzi's going to do it. And then somebody else near and dear to my heart is going to step up and, and a female host. Uh, you might guess who that might be. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, 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 I have a good, a good segue guess. Too, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that in just a second, but I, I want to stick with the CAC for a second. So yes, John did a great job. I thought last year, but, and, and for people that don't know, you know, I, I mean, I'm assuming most of the people that listen to this will know what the Cauliflower Alley Club is. But if you if you've never gone to the reunions, uh, one and one of the things they do, which I wasn't even that familiar with because this was my first time, is that the MC will sort of do this roving mic bit, whether it's you or I don't know if anyone else has ever done it, where they'll talk to random people that are there at the banquet, you know, and in my case, I was a first timer. I was there with my wife and I had no idea this was going to happen. And then what I wound up doing <laughs> is I, I didn't know what are you supposed to say? What's okay to say? What's not okay to say? And I plugged my book, I plugged the Sheik book. And then that became like a running gag for the rest of the banquet of everybody, you know, saying, well, I have this new book coming out. <laughs> I just thought, well, maybe I should have been a little more humble and not as, you know, not as much selling myself. I should have just introduced myself. That's but that's the very nature of pro wrestling, right? They have to true. sell themselves, right? Like, yeah, they have to sell themselves to the promoter. They have to sell themselves to the fans. They have to sell themselves on TV. They have to do whatever they can to get noticed. Yes, and it's true. You know, look, we all have our preferences. And there's a lot of people that prefer old school wrestling to contemporary wrestling. I'm one of those people. But um, you also have to recognize, like you said, and I know it, it's been something that has been a struggle with CAC, I think, with some of the younger members and the younger people, which is where you also don't want to go there and have your work or your business just disparaged whether it be in the newsletter or, or live at the dinner, you know, it's, 
there, there, there is a time and a place and there's, you know, it's important to be diplomatic and be inclusive and be welcoming because otherwise not just CAC, but other kinds of organizations like it um, cannot survive because it's just going to become strictly tied to a specific window of time, certain generations, and then later generations will have no use for it. So it's important to, to grow and to develop and to, and to always include, I think, because look, let's be honest, um, a lot of these old timers that are, getting, that are disparaging modern wrestling uh, were probably disparaged in their own day by the old timers back then. So, so you kind of have to have a broader mind about it, I think. Absolutely. Everything changes. Every, I mean, watching a hockey game or a baseball game from 1950 is nothing compared to watching a baseball or hockey game today. They're just, they're, they're the same sport, but they're very different. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and you should know, actually, I, I want to mention that because uh, people that know you also probably know that you've written extensively about hockey as well. And you have a book coming out about the Toronto Blue Jays. I know you mentioned which would be your first book on baseball. But also, we kind of hinted at this, so we might as well mention it, but you are, you're done, right, with the book uh, that you have been working on with Medusa, a.k.a. Alundra Blaze. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's at the editors. Um, so with ECW Press, it's coming out. There's never been a book for adults about monster trucks. So for one, I had to do, we talk about the lack of stats and research for wrestling. Well, there was even less for monster trucks. So I had to do so much digging and, and, and heading out and finding sources and people that can really be authorities um, just to try to verify some of the things that she kept saying. And so, but it's a fascinating book. She had a, a crazy life to say the least. And, and, and it's incredibly revealing uh, I'm very proud, and, and she was very brave talking about a lot of things in the book. And it, it'll be um, a pretty amazing book, I think. And it hopefully will find an audience well beyond wrestling and, and monster trucks because we tried to write it that way. Yeah, and, and I think it's a, it's a great – I mean, talk about somebody who, who needs to have a book done. If we're talking about that, I mean, she's a great figure. I mean, definitely, especially now in the business that we have today where women have such – so many more opportunities and are so much more a part of the show than they ever were at a high, higher level than ever that people like her who, you know, look, it's a cliche. We say it all the time about this, that, or the other person, but who paved the way. I mean, somebody who, who really truly did, it's not just lip service. I mean, there were periods in, in, in pro wrestling, especially over here where she was women's wrestling. I mean, you know, she was like the only show in town in terms of like star power, you know? It's, it's funny. I was just yesterday for slamwrestling.net. I was talking to Jordan Grace, who's the impact knockouts champion for an interview. And she mentioned, Oh, they're going to do a taping at center stage in Atlanta, which is of course where WCW, you know, recorded so many of their broadcasts. And then I mentioned to her, well, I'm really impressed how far the women have come because I talked to both Missy Hyatt and Medusa and they basically would get a broom closet and they'd have to set up all their makeup and do everything there. They were the only two women on the show. And, you know, now you get an entire knockouts division there. I'm, I'm pretty sure they have more than a broom closet when they go to do the taping. Yeah, I would hope so. And yeah, I mean, it was, look, uh, you know, we, we know this. Women's wrestling for the longest time was treated like a sideshow. It was like an oddity. It was like a, it was like a freak part of the show, you know, some kind of lurid 
thing that, oh, wow, there's women coming to town next week. You, you know, uh, women and midgets, you know, yep. <laughs> or some guy wrestling a bear. Oh, my God. You know, it was this weird, freakish thing, just the, the visual of seeing women rolling around on the mat and fighting each other, you know, like it was some forbidden thing that you couldn't see. And, it, and it's really come so far. That's why one thing, sometimes when I have conversations with people about women's wrestling, and I know, look, I'm not a woman, I'm a man, and I'm, you know, I'm, my views are, you know, I, or maybe different or whatever, but, but I think some perspective is needed because sometimes I'll have conversations and people will go, oh man, women's wrestling right now is awful. Man, this is just, a, what are they doing? This is a mess. And oh my God, they're not pushing this person. They're not pushing that person. And I'll go, you know what? Okay, yeah, you're right. It's not maybe as, as great as it could be in our minds. And there's certain things that could be done better. But my God, we're living in a golden age of women's wrestling. The, the last decade or so, or close to a decade, I mean, there's never been anything like it. And I mean, yeah, there's there's ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys, but I mean, you know, even when in my own lifetime as a kid, I can remember times when, you know, there weren't even any women, you know, or, or you'd have like, and, and Medusa knows this well, where the whole women's division would be the champion and her challenger. And that was it. Right. And every match was a match for the title. There was no other, you know, type of women's wrestling going on. Or you had stuff like Glow, which everybody loves it and it's entertaining and it's funny, but you know, it's not <laughs> what they're going for today in terms of women's wrestling. So, I mean, I, I think sometimes some perspective is needed. Yes, do I think that there's room for improvement? There's always room for improvement. But, I mean, this is like the in all of the history of professional wrestling, this is the time to be a women's wrestler, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And uh, they've come a long way. And I know Medusa is a big part of that. Um and that's what makes it fun to tell her story. Yeah. Wow. I mean, God, I remember, you know, I knew about her as a kid um, from wrestling magazines, of course, like we would always learn about things that we couldn't see on TV, you know, and the, but the first time I really got to see her regularly was when she came to the WWF and, and the stuff that she was doing. I mean, I had seen her, you know, I'd seen her in WCW, but at that point, like early 90s, they were kind of just having her as a manager when, when she was with the Dangerous Alliance and with Paul Heyman and that. And, you know, but to really see her work and the stuff she was doing, like with Bull Nakano and Aja Kong. And I, I mean, it was like it, it's, a, it's the same way I felt about the Jumping Bomb Angels in the 80s, where it was like, no one wants to say this, but these women are having the best matches on the show, time in and time out. It's like the stuff that you look forward to the most. Um, and they're not given, they're not being rewarded for that, you know? So, I mean, God, kudos to her for, for soldiering on through that. I mean, she really was in her heyday. She was one of the best workers in the business period. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And, uh, she's still, uh, involved and, uh, yeah, that'd be a good book. Yeah, because what I love about her, too, is, and you now know this way more than I do, but I mean, she's very outspoken. She's not afraid to speak her mind. I mean, at least my experience of hearing her and, and listening to her, you know, she will say what's on her mind. She's, she's not somebody who's worried about politics or things like that. She will talk. And so it's nice to, for her to have a, a platform, you know, to tell her story. Absolutely. Yeah, no, she's, uh, she's no shrinking violet. That's, that's <laughs> for sure. She loves to really be opinionated and, uh, 
you know, it, where's the contrast? And it's just a different world, right? Is that John Gibbons was the manager of the Blue Jays and I'm working on his book and they're both coming out in the spring, but John doesn't really throw very many people under the bus at all, right? Mm-hmm. He's still got the possibility he can be out there managing again a major league team. So, you know, he's got a different sort of perspective on what he wants to do. Medusa, ah, she burns every bridge she can. So <laughs> if necessary. Well, good for her. I mean, you know, because look, uh, especially for the women, they in the, and especially in that era, they had to deal with a lot of crap. They had to to swallow their pride a lot and, and deal with a lot of stuff that even the male wrestlers didn't have to deal with. So, you know, good for her that she feels that she can let it all out. I mean, God knows she's earned it having having to deal with all the things that she dealt with. Like I know, you know, one thing that I, I, I had heard her talk about was how there was a time where she just walked away from it because she just felt like I'm not going to get anywhere with this. Like what opportunities are there? And this was like well before she came to the WWF. So, so thankfully she, she thought better of it, I guess. Yep. Yeah. No. And, and there's all the Japanese influence that she brought to, you know, North America wrestling. I mean, she's not the only one obviously that did it, but she was the first one to go live there uh, and train there uh, as far as a Gaijin and uh, brought back that style. And that's really what we have today. Right. Like I remember when she came to, when she brought Bull Nakano to it, or, or I guess when WWF brought Bull Nakano in to work with her and they showed a highlight of, a, of the mat of a mat, the match they had in Japan where uh, she won the title. And it was like nothing I, I'd ever seen at that time. You're talking like 1993. So those kind of matches were opening eyes, I think, to a lot of people. And that drew more people in. They wanted to then go see Bull Nakano and, and, and Alunda Blaze fight in person. And, and it really started opening in a lot of eyes, I think. I think it did. I mean, it was a little disheartening that they then just sort of like phased out the women's division, you know, and then they, they brought it back. And for a while it was kind of just cheesecake and that sort of thing. But, but again, you'll hear with a lot of the, the women who came later, and I'm sure you heard a lot of it, where they'll mention her as somebody that um, was an influence on them or made them want to do it or made them see that it was possible that they could actually succeed. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Beth Phoenix had a post of her. Those kind of things are, are, you know, what makes this business fascinating because, yeah, you don't get anywhere on your own. There's always somebody that came before you. And again, that's the historian aspect of what we do. Yeah, I mean, now we're even at the point where some of the people that were inspired by Medusa are now the people that inspire, you know, a new generation of of women, because then there's women that'll point to Beth Phoenix or Trish Stratus or, or Lita, you know, people that that came after her that, you know, were inspired by her. And now, you know, it kind of continues on in that way. Well, but that also goes to what we talked about, how the winners are writing their history. Right. And WWE True. loves to push Trish, who's a friend, and Lita and, and all them as they were so groundbreaking this and that. And so many other people never get mentioned. Your Heidi Lee Morgans, your Lilani Kai's, those yeah. kind of people that were deeply influential uh, just never get mentioned. That's true. I can remember the first time, and I give, I think it was John Layfield, I give him credit for this, but on commentary, somebody talked about Mildred Burke. And I almost fell out of my chair because, you know, they would always act like Fabulous Moolah was everything, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And 
there was no women's wrestling before her, you know, and, and it was very sad to me, especially when I learned about uh, Mildred Burke's career, how that had been very calculated on Moolah's part, how she had eclipsed her intentionally and, 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 and phased her out very intentionally. And to see, you know, them, and now, now they will regularly mention her again, and it seems like maybe in, in light of not wanting to talk so much about Fabulous Moolah anymore, <laughs> now they can point to Mildred Burke as, you know, the pioneer of women's wrestling. But it's interesting how sometimes the history can shift like that. <laughs> Yep. Well, and nobody talks about Clara Mortensen, who was married to right. Paul Bowser. And, you know, like all these things that politics matter so much. Um, again, it, it, whether it's a relationship, whether it's uh, in, in pro wrestling and how you're getting, how, whether you know the booker, how you know the booker, whether the booker goes drinking with your husband or whatever it is, right? However, these guys get pushed. It's not any different today. It's not just about talent. No, that's very true. And I mean, like, especially, you know, if we're if we're talking about Toronto, you know, what I discovered with the Sheik book was how, and this is before, because you're talking about how when Tunney, the Tunnies were working with the Crockets and they kind of had this working arrangement where they would bring in WWF talent and AWA talent and you would have these cards, my God, like if you look at some of these Maple Leaf Gardens shows from like the late 70s, early 80s, it's like um, the wrestling equivalent of an all-star team where you've got you know, the NWA champion is there. The WWF champion is there. The AWA champion is there. You know, all these people wrestling each other from different territories on these Maple Leaf Garden shows. But before that era was the era where the Sheik was essentially booking. And it just was something that was really hot for a while. And then it just kind of stagnated because he just wouldn't stop putting himself over everybody. Right. And people just got sick of it after a while. I mean, he's beating everybody. Like I talked about it in the book where they're watching Luthez come in, uh, Killer Kowalski, Bruno Sammartino, Gene Kaniski, Dory Funk Jr., Jack Briscoe, like, like world champions in, coming in and even they can't beat him or they're, or they're, you know, they're losing by DQ or something. And, and, and then they finally just got fed up when it was Andre the Giant because <laughs> they just sort of felt like, oh my God, this guy, can he even... <laughs> Can he even lose to Andre the Giant? You know, like even even back then, there was this understanding of we see what's happening here. Like this is we're, we're, this seems a little um, what's the what's the word? Like not entirely on the level. What's happening here? How is this guy beating? A little iffy, right? How is this guy beating everybody? And and then the business starts to go down with the Sheik as the Booker. Yep, put yourself over. Booker's rule. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's that tried and true uh, <laughs> curse of wrestling, the, the curse of the wrestler booker. It's like the player manager. It's like what people, you know, it's so funny. It reminds me of what people used to say about Pete Rose when Pete Rose was going for the the all-time hit record, right? He was trying to break the Ty Cobb record. And then you had people going, and this is well before all the gambling stuff, but you had people going, well, he's the manager. So, you know, he's putting himself in the lineup He's making sure that he could beat that record. He's, he, he's, you know, giving himself an advantage that he wouldn't have if he wasn't the manager. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, maybe it is, but it's like the, the wrestler booker thing is almost like the player manager thing in baseball. Well, but Vern Gagne told me this is that, you know, you put the belt on people you trust and sometimes that's family, right? right. Like Larry Zabisco was married to his daughter at one point. So, 
you got to be able to trust these guys that they're not going to screw you. And that's very important for wrestling to look out for yourself. Yeah, it's true because I mean, really at the end of the day, that's all you, that's all only people you could trust. And I mean, in the case of Vern Gagne, I mean, you know, it was himself, you know, even, yeah. even more than family. I mean, yes, he pushed his son very well. Uh, him and Jim Brunzel were like, you know, an institution in the AWA as a tag team, but, but he just, and the Sheik did the same thing where it was like, well, I guess the person I can most trust is me. So I'm just going to be the champion, you know? That works. Yeah. But at least, uh, you know, at least with, with Vern, he, he trusted Nick Bockwinkle for a while there. I mean, he let Bockwinkle run with it when he, you know, of, of course he had to have that last run at the end and win it back and then, you know, retire. I guess he was in his fifties by the time he finally decided to walk away, Rick really truly walk away. Yeah, no, it's uh well, wrestling's fascinating that way, right? It's like why somebody became champion as opposed to just that they became champion, right? It's pretty easy to say the Colorado Avalanche have been playing great. You know, they deserve to win the Stanley Cup. But when wrestling, it's like, well, there's 18 different reasons beside the fact that he looks good and can wrestle that, that somebody gets put on top. Yeah, and sometimes those things are more interesting. You know, learning all that behind-the-scenes stuff, just the the wheeling and dealing and the backstage stuff and why the decisions are made and all the backroom politics. I mean, that's probably the most interesting thing to me of all. Just, you know, how did how did they pick this guy to be the NWA champion? Who, who almost got selected? You know, who was on the list and, and who was pushing for, for who and all that kind of stuff? That, excuse me, that just fascinates me. Me too. And it's just, it's so hard to document. And so many of those guys are gone, right? So we're really struggling sometimes to figure out why things happen. It's true. That is, you know, the windows on things uh, are finite (laughs) and they don't stay open forever. And, you know, I, I I even feel like with my book, um, you know, I'm proud of it. I think it's a good piece of work. I think if I wrote it 20 years ago, I might've even had a much easier time of it. I might've had more access, you know, I, I might have been able to talk to Bobo Brazil. I might have been able to persuade the Sheik to talk to me, you know, uh, um, things like that. I, you know, I, I would have had, had the opportunities to, to find people that are not with us anymore. Um, but, you know, like a, a book that I'm thinking about doing next or soon or one day is a book on the history of wrestling magazines. And I started thinking even that is something where it's like, Okay, you better hurry up because you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there are there are many people around from the the era that I read wrestling magazines. You know, eighties, nineties. I mean, they're, they're all around. But if but if you go back to the earlier years of it, and and wrestling review and the ring wrestling and and um, you know um, wrestling as you like it and some of the gr- groundbreaking early wrestling magazines, um, you know, there's 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 a limited time to talk to people and no one else is going to have those stories of how those magazines got started. I can't even figure out in some cases who owns the assets of some of these old wrestling magazines. It's almost like they've just been abandoned to the sands of time in some cases. There's elements of that. I mean, I worked with uh, Bill Apter on his book. I was basically his coach might be a good way to put it. So he'd be writing a chapter and sending it in to me and I'd give him pointers and tips and 
uh, encourage him to write about things that maybe he didn't want to. And mm. I learned a ton about the magazines there, but there's still a lot more to learn out there for sure. Get yeah. working on it, boy. Yeah. There's no I, money in it, but go for it. <laughs> nobody's done it. And, you know, obviously if, if I were to do it, it would have to be, this is the way I look at it. It would have to be some type of visual book, like almost like an art book. And look, if they can put out coffee table art books on pulp magazines, adventure novels, uh, every era of comic books imaginable, even, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, men's magazines, what have you from pop culture history, then somebody could do something on wrestling magazines. And, and I think there's, there's a market out there for that, even from just a kitschy pop culture history perspective. And I am going to find out if there's a market out there, <laughs> if I decide to do a book like that. Yeah. It sort of makes you wonder how uh, the Theo Era book did that, you know, was that right. in LA, you know, again, that's somebody we saw in all those magazines, his pictures were everywhere, but uh, you know, they did a, a tribute book to him and I, I no idea how well it ever sold. Right, because I mean, God, probably the the most. I mean, I don't think you get much argument against it, saying that he probably was the greatest photographer to ever shoot pro wrestling regularly. Oh, I don't know. There's been a lot of good ones. It's Who, tough. Sometimes. I know there's been a lot of good ones, but I mean, God, I I, I mean, I, I feel like with, with a lot of his photography, I'd put it up against, and there are other people I would say this about too, but I would put it up against any of the great sports photography period. Like, like there are just shots of his that are just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful shots. And they just happen to be of wrestling. Okay. I'll agree with that. Yeah. But then somebody like Tony Lanza really set the bar for the posed yes. photos, you know, yes. getting to go yes. to his house one day and, and seeing where he shot all that stuff was fascinating. Oh, wow. That is wild. I, you know, he, when I worked at WWE, Tony Lanza used to send us stuff and material at that time, they weren't doing a lot of historical stuff. They're, they're, they do more historical stuff now. Back then, they really weren't, and it really didn't go anywhere. But I remember, because I was an editor, so a lot of it would be coming to me. And I felt bad, because he was a very old man at that point. And, you know, I, I think he was looking to maybe sell off some of his archives and his things. And there just wasn't a lot of interest at that time within WWE. I wonder if he was around to do it now, if things would be different. I don't know. He's pretty old when I met him. I, yeah. But yeah, that's that's one of the great things about this business is I've gotten to meet so many different people because I tried, right? I went out of my way to do it. That's all it takes. Yeah, exactly. You you know, you're going to be somewhere, you, you meet with somebody. Uh, you know, it, it can be a fascinating business that way and you get to learn different things. You make contacts to pay off down the road in ways you never expect. Yeah, well, look, I mean, if anybody's been proving that, it's us. I mean, building the relationships that, that you've built over the years and that I've been trying to build over the years in the business, it really does uh, pay off if you stick with it. And, wow, I just, I can't thank you enough for even agreeing to talk about this stuff with me. I really do appreciate it. it it's one of those things, Brian, where I think we could have talked for another couple hours easy, but that's the nature of this, right? Down the road, once you've gone through your your cycle of, all these interesting <laughs> guests you've been getting. And, and again, I, I mentioned it to you off air, but keep getting those guests that nobody else does. So their stories are kept, you know, how many times do we need to have, you know, your hacksaw Duggan or your <laughs> Shane Douglas on, on podcasts and they're all good guys, but let's get the different people out there. Even just on slamwrestling.net, we ran an interview with Ranger Ross. Who else talks to Ranger Ross? Not enough. Right. So let's, no, let's keep it up. 
that is what I've been trying to do. And thank you for that. I mean, I'm trying to want like what I do, even getting the former Titan tower employees and people that I work with who have these incredible stories. And, and sometimes when I do talk to people that are very frequent podcast guests and you hear a lot from, like I talked to, you know, uh, blue Meanie or Rob Van Dam, I try to talk to them and ask them about things that they aren't used to talking about. You know what I mean? Like I did a whole hour with the blue mini and we, we, we almost never talked about ECW. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. We no, talked I love about that. when, when, when you're doing an interview with somebody, when they say, I never get asked that. Yeah. Thank you. That's the most beautiful things you can remember. And, and they're not always wrestling that you get that with, but right, when you do right. your research and, and it pays off, that's, that's where we get off as writers, I think, and researchers. Yes. And like you said, I mean, we could go on for hours, but you know, he, the thing is that's where the repeat guest appearances come in because I, <laughs> I like that. I'd rather have it be where you, you, you still have a million things you didn't get to than just kind of running out of stuff and, you know, and, 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 you know, not having anything to say, which has never happened to me yet. So I haven't um, been, I haven't repeated any guests yet so far. But I definitely will be because almost everyone I've had, I've wanted to just keep going, do, okay. do another hour right with. So it'll be happening. And I, I hope you'll agree to come back when the, when the time comes. Well, I'm sure the pay will go up, right? So it's all good. <laughs> yeah, it'll be exactly what you got paid for this one times two. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, I get to plug everything. Oliverbooks.ca. Yeah, please. Uh, That's where you find all my books. And uh, slamwrestling.net for... Uh, all the wrestling writing that we do. And the Medusa book, do you want to give a little? Well, it'll be out. It, there's a little bit on it at oliverbooks.ca, but yeah, it'll be out next spring. And the John Gibbons book, which is just called Gibby, will be out in the spring too. It's going to be a crazy uh, year for me uh, in April, having both books out at once. Wow. Amazing. And are you going to be at CAC again in the fall? That's the plan. Yeah. No, Steve Johnson's supposed to be getting, well, he's getting the Melby awards. So, right. I better go there to mock him at least. So, <laughs> so they got you and now they're going to get him. It's like, is, is it like a package deal where they like required to give it to both of you or? No, I was, I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised. I was part of them bouncing around the ideas for some different names. Um, but I sort of recused myself, but like just sort of said, you know how I feel about Steve and he deserves it hundred oh, percent. Awesome. He's been a mentor as well as a friend and a co-writer. Um, he's the kind of guy that would encourage me to make that next call, which is what it's all about, right? Sometimes you make that next call. You, you just do that next thing that makes it a better story. Absolutely. Well, then uh, I guess we'll see each other then. If, if we don't have part two before then, we will definitely see each other <laughs> in September at Cauliflower Alley. I look forward to it, Greg. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. There you go, folks. My conversation with Greg Oliver finally revealed for all the world to hear. I sincerely hope it was worth the wait, and I sincerely thank Greg for consenting to give some of his time to have that conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing him again uh, next month at the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion in Las Vegas. I'm also looking forward to the future guests that we will be having here on Shut Up and Wrestle, because next week will be a dear friend of mine for next week's episode. He is the beloved and esteemed wrestling memorabilia collector and longtime fan, Tom Burke. He will be the guest 
for episode 29. And guess what? For episode 30, we've got a big one. We've got a doozy for the 30th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. It's going to be the Taskmaster, the Prince of Darkness himself, Kevin Sullivan. And as if that's not enough, also coming down the pike as a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle, I have one of the esteemed Hart dynasty, Ross Hart, the brother of Brett the Hitman Hart, son of Stu and Helen Hart, will be a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. So keep on listening in the weeks to come. There are so many places for you to listen. Of course, there's our website, suawpod.com. You can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. That means Spotify, Podcast Addict, uh, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever. And especially on Apple Podcasts, if you feel so inclined, uh, please leave a review for Shut Up and Wrestle. Of course, only if it's positive, but please leave a review. Um, (laughs) uh, Just kidding. You can say whatever you want. And uh, while you're at it, why not join the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle? We've got one. Uh, Just look up Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon on Facebook, and you can join the conversation all about this show. Uh, If you're interested in buying a copy of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, you can get it on Amazon in digital print or audio form, audio narrated by myself. If you would like to buy an autographed copy, you can reach out directly to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. As well, you know, uh, if you want to buy the magazines that I write for, I mentioned at the top of the show, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. Also, for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, go to PWI-Online.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Brian R. Solomon. And you know what? On the Twitter... If you would like to contribute to this show and the things we do here, there is a button on my Twitter account, and I'm not too proud to plug it, where you can send funds my way in support of Shut Up and Wrestle or in support of the writings of Brian Solomon in general. Again, that's Brian R. Solomon on Twitter. Also, uh, on Facebook, there is my author Facebook page. Just look up Brian Solomon Writer and you will find it. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author web page. Of course, as always, Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying that only you can prevent forest fires. So long, wrestling fans. 